you're listening, so, see, now I've got to remember that I've got to start the thing. Shut up, everyone. You've got to start with, like, a low your. Shut your. <laughs> you're listening to Not Good Enough, an inadequate response to inadequate responses. I'm Tom Lang. I'm Tom McLean. And I'm Evie. And in our headphones is Isaac, as always. Mitch is away on assignment, so I'm covering him for the radio e bits. But joining <laughs> us, we have Lee Constable, who is a science communicator slash presenter slash climate person slash well-rounded, complicated individual. Uh, hello, Lee. <laughs> hello. <laughs> Best intro. Thank you. <laughs> it's it's not quite as uh, as as polished and baritoned as as Mitch tends to get, but you know, I think we don't need him at all anymore. Also, you were kind of working with the vague intro that I gave you was very much uh, I don't know who I am or what I am. <laughs> so <laughs> you did well considering what I gave you to work with. Well, thank yeah. you. I think because you're a you're a science communicator, and and I claim I'm a science communicator, and I think it's one of those things that's a little bit like a being an artist or something, where you don't have to prove it. You don't have to have your job card that says I am an artist. It's just something that is inside you at some point. <laughs> it's also, I suppose, we're like a leftist podcast, so really any guest that we get on isn't going to be like, yeah, I have a really solid sense of identity in Korea that I can like, readily identify with. <laughs> 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 Everyone's just like, oh god, I'm a huge mess, thanks for having me on. You say you're a science communicator, communicate to me three science things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell us the science, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> It's a fact that uh, everything I say today is true and real and Excellent. gospel. Yeah, that sounds like a science communicator to me. <laughs> can, can I get you to tell to say on the podcast that Yowies are real and because you're a scientist, they're real? Yowies are real. Yes. Uh, what? What? <laughs> Guys, oh that's how this You're works, right? Hazing her. <laughs> yeah, oh, I mean, my favorite thing is like the start of a sentence that's like scientists say, but I like to mm. apply that to all of the absolute dinguses I know and I'm friends with who are scientists. Like, you know, a friend will be like, I don't know, saying something silly about how they actually don't need to iron their shirt because they can just wear it and the warmth of their body will probably smooth it out. And I can be like, yeah. scientists say that uh, <laughs> ironing is actually redundant. Um, that's kind of how <laughs> media reports when scientists have something to say. Oh, that rocks. It's like seizing on them when they're just trying to complain. Scientists say, fuck, I've had a horrible week. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That reminds me of like of speaking of yaoi's and other cryptids of that nature. Um, that reminds me of the whole thing about the thylacine potentially being real um, the other week in the news. Uh, oh, yeah. Basically, to give some context to our listeners, um, a man in, in Tasmania uh, has been attempting to track the thylacine for many years now and is part of some thylacine awareness foundation. Um, and he claimed that he'd finally found it in a YouTube video, which went viral uh, worldwide. But it's very obvious from the photos that it's a padamelon, which is a, which is a <laughs> mammal similar to a kangaroo or a wallaby. And all I could That's think about was like just a like just a fat ass thylacine. Well, he really wanted to be a fat ass thylacine, mm. <laughs> but he got on like all these what he called like experts. But it's just basically a vet that he'd known, 
uh, for like a couple of like a couple of years who was like, yeah, this is definitely not a cat or a dog. So scientists say uh, this is a thylacine because it's definitely not a cat or a dog. That's <laughs> the definition of a thylacine, right? <laughs> can I just can I just pick apart the idea of a thylacine being a cryptid though? It's, it's just an extinct <laughs> animal, right? It's, <laughs> it's not a mythological creature. <laughs> At this point, I feel like a thylacine has graduated to being a cryptid. It's got cryptid energy, yeah. We've gotten tangented so hard there. This is very not good enough fashion. <laughs> what I was going to say is, Lee, what have you been up to? But never mind, that was my <laughs> We're talking about cryptids, Lang. <laughs> um, all right. No, Lee, I'd love to like talk about some stuff that you're doing. Um, yeah, Lee, do you have anything that you would like to be talking about things that you're doing? I suppose I could tell you uh, in a nutshell what I've been doing. What have you been doing? <laughs> it's been a year now since I, uh, over a year now since I decided to take a leap of faith into full-time freelance. It was February 2020 and I was like, best time in history for me to leave my secure uh like science presenter job I was hosting um like a kid's science show called Scope uh with Channel 10 and I was like yes this is it I'm feeling it uh something about this is momentous and historic what I was actually sensing was the impending pandemic but um I've ended up spending a lot of time doing what I'm doing right now which is sitting at my laptop and just talking online so it's been kind of cool in a way the first few months were definitely an existential crisis where everything I had planned and thought was a solid entry to freelance life got cancelled because it all had to do with being in person at an event Mm. Um, but after that I feel like there was just some silence while everyone just went "Oh, oh what 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 do we do and then everyone kind of went oh I know netball style we're pivoting to online. Um, and I think when that happened, then suddenly they were like, Lee's a young person who doesn't have any uh, income and she understands the interwebs and social media. We can get her to host something or, or do some online interviews mm. or, you know, even I've, do some voiceovers, write a script and voiceover in her, in her wardrobe with a doona over her and film things with my phone in my own <laughs> makeshift studio. So it's been a lot of that, um, but lots of live streaming too. So I've started um, regularly live streaming for a startup live streaming platform called Simpatico, spelled with mm. a C-I for collective impact, um, and doing a show called Climate Australia where I interview people. But it's not just science, and I think that's a problem is that we think of climate communication sometimes as science communication when really it's all the disciplines communication (laughs) related to something like climate. Um, So interviewing people who are scientists, but, you know, on the whole, people who aren't, people who are, you know, engineers, who are consultants, who are media people, uh, who are policy people, economists, all kinds of people. Um, Yeah, and then late last year I was like, you know what? I'm going to try Twitch. That's what the kids are up to. So I am not a video game person. I 
you know, I just started gaming regularly, actually, for the first time in my life, playing Animal Crossing way after the party. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, but I've been using Twitch to kind of do Captain Planet recap episodes where we talk about, you know, oh, what was happening so in the 90s versus now based on what happened in those episodes and talking that's about that's climate really environment cool. news. Um, it's been wild. Like, yeah, so what I've been doing has been a very mixed bag and I've been getting more into uh, comedy. What I loved about <laughs> um, Scope and working on, like, this kids' show was that quite often I got to flex my drama kid muscles and do, like, <laughs> wildly daggy skits to explain science concepts. Um, and I, I, people don't often realise, but I have a a degree, um, an arts degree as well as science, science background. So I've got a majors in drama and sociology and I've always been kind of into skit comedy and different things like that. So, yeah, I've, I've done like one virtual show this year, which was a US show, uh, science comedy. It was um, Scientifically Funny Women, which was Was, that, with, was that Belinda Raffi? Ah, no one? but. I have just started doing sustainable stand-up course with Belinda Raffi. Uh, um, and so I've been loving that. I've only done two so far, but it's been a great way to think about new and comedic ways to communicate about climate mm. crisis because I think we all went into a dark hole for obvious reasons, myself included. So I need yeah. to <laughs> figure out how to make my rants uh, less gruelling for other people <laughs> and... <laughs> Maybe well, so think, they can take something away. Yeah, that was going to be my question. Like, my first question is just, like, I find it so interesting and also just very aspirational um, for science communicators like yourself to be able to, com like, talk about climate change in a way that is just not constantly just feeling like doom and gloom to children mm. especially. Like, I, I, mm. I realise that's, like, quite a struggle. It's, um... Yeah, it, it is tough, like, but I've done lots of episodes of Scope that were, like, climate-focused um, and things like that, and the thing about kids' TV is it's always like, oh, yeah, let's talk about uh, cancer, but don't don't make it sad. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> careful of the children. Uh, so, uh, yeah, then you, you get to something like climate and you know that your audience not only... Um, you know, that they not only will feel sad, but they also that they feel, you know, quite fired up about it. You have to be yeah. living under a rock to not realise that young people, um, including young people in Australia, care, you know, school yeah. strike and all that. So, yeah. Mm. yeah, one thing that I think was different from, because I did Scope for four years and it's almost 50 episodes a year, so it's like every single week a half hour of a different theme. So you revisit the same themes in different ways mm. often sustainability will come up again climate change itself it's like, haven't we fixed this yet yeah or those you know topics will be you know peppered throughout other topics as everything's related and i think more in the last couple of years we were talking not only about climate change but how are we going to talk about this topic not only in terms of the things that will be individually empowering because kids feel like they can do something but also not making them feel like all the pressure's on them and mm. also looking after their mental health. And 
Yeah, we had a lot more conversations about mental health and well-being on the show, like brain science episodes where we talked about mental health and, you know, had Kids Helpline um, come in and do some things with me and some kids to, to do exercises that help our mental health, but talking about the brain science behind why that can help. But then those things meld, like when we did one of our climate, I think it might have been the final episode I did that was focused on climate and environment before I left, um, we had a couple of the local Brisbane-based school strike leaders um, come in and and part of that was, was them talking about how uh, connecting with each other and looking after each other helps them and they talked about, you know, how hard it can be on your mental health but also that making friends and not feeling alone in it was part of that. So, yeah, I think that's also something that's come into it is like finding ways to have fun and be that light 30-minute morning kids show but also not being afraid to touch on some of this other stuff. With with climate, I think that's a really good point is what you were saying earlier about about it all being a science thing. That's absolutely it was a science thing in the 80s and 90s. The scientists did all of their job. We've moved past that. Um and now it is absolutely all of these other things. And when you're teaching people about this doom and gloom stuff, the trick isn't to pretend it's not doom and gloom, but to say, yeah, this is scary, but here's how we, we deal with that. Mm. Um, and I think, I think that's the point we sort of need to be at as a society. And that's the point that a lot of people who are, who are doing stuff well, like the school strikers and stuff, they go, this is scary and that's why we need to fix it. Let's not pretend it's not, but let's give ourselves the resources and and communities and stuff we need to be able to to work with that. Yeah, yeah, and it's also okay to take a break, that taking a break from, you know, explicitly being a part of, Mm. like, action and everything like that isn't actually taking a break from being part of it. It's actually that looking after your mental health is you looking after the environment because if you don't look after yourself, then you can't be your best self to join in that fight when you're able. Exactly. I think a lot of the time when people are like, well, let's not get into the doom and gloom stuff. We don't want to scare the children. I think what they're really saying is we don't want to scare the adults. Mm. Uh, because <laughs> yeah. I think it, yeah. it mostly makes adults very uncomfortable, whereas the children are like, so tell me more about when we're all going to die. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think I, uh, you know, I'm still constantly surprised and, you know, enlightened by the different ways that young people are engaging with the topic. Um, like I wrote a couple of years ago um, a book called How to Save the Whole Stinking Planet. Um, so that's mm. fixed. And mm-hmm. <laughs> you can read it. It's, it's good. It, it, it'll be done. Um, not really, but it um, it was when writing a book like that, and it did focus on waste and recycling, which we know is not the whole problem or solution, but also is one of the few things that primary school kids who are the target of the book actually mm. do have in their physical hands often. Exactly. You know, and so I it was widely about environmental issues and being empowered to be a part of the solution and things like that. But it was also, oh, this is about waste and recycling. So when I wrote that, I got, you know, some questions about it when, um, you know, kids' magazines were reviewing it and wanting to send me some interview questions. And it was interesting, a question that kept coming up independently from different sources was about 
uh, anxiety and overwhelm and, and fear and what do you say to young people to, that feel that way? So these media organisations that focus on kids um, know that kids are already feeling that way. So it's like telling them about this stuff won't necessarily make them feel that yeah. way. But but um, so why don't we just acknowledge that they feel that way and talk about some ways to to actually deal with that and cope with that? Yeah, So so I think it really kind of highlighted the fact that that they're already there and ignoring, I mean, as we know, ignoring things doesn't make them go away from children's lives. You know, we, I mean, this will get even more dark and think of the children, but just think of the fact that what we're hearing in the news about um, rape and sexual assault and consent issues, you don't have to be... Uh, legal consenting age before you can be raped or sexually assaulted. So the fact that we pretend we don't need to talk about consent before someone is con- of consenting oh, age yeah. makes no sense. Um, I was absolutely yeah. going to, yeah. And yeah. the way that, like, in America, they, they don't want to talk about sex with kids. It's like kids are going to find out about it. They're talking about it themselves. Like, yeah. if you don't talk about it, they're just going to get it wrong. Yeah. One thing that came up last week is that um, Scott Morrison openly talked about how he didn't want his children attending yeah. schools where they talked about consent education. It's like, mm. what? What? <laughs> what does that say? Yeah. yeah. Oh, you don't want to equip them with the tools that they need. Are you okay with the idea that they might think that they have to say yes to anything an adult wants them to do in their lives mm. or, you know, even mm. a- another child their age? Like, mm. um, yeah. The, the idea that we shouldn't talk to kids about climate change because it might scare them sort of implies that we should also be stopping anyone talking about climate change <laughs> yeah. because otherwise they're just going to osmote yeah. it. You know, you, oh, you, gosh. It's like they're going to find it, out. So you should be a valuable channel of that information. And the thing is they're going to find out more than ever. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me realise just how often think of the children is deployed as a defence in Australia alone as reasons for like employing legislation I mean it's happening to like legislation at the moment with the online safety bill we've talked about it previously um it like with climate change education it's just yeah insane it's insane just the idea that kids should be protected from the basics I don't think that think of the children is ever deployed sincerely (laughs) it's it's purely a tactical line (laughs) of course not it's completely insincerely Yeah, everyone's like, oh, back in my day, we didn't have any of these problems. And it's like, well, you did. People just buried them very deep inside and they got worse. Unless you're 120 years old, you had a climate change problem. But, yeah, it's, it's totally that thing. Like, you know, having been a teenage girl, I would have to say that the boys that I interacted with certainly, you know, weren't old enough in some people's eyes to learn about sex and consent but that didn't stop them from sexually assaulting me you know Mm. so it's like okay well you think that not teaching them about that will prevent them from exploring it even in a positive way but you don't actually realize that they're (laughs) exploring it and getting it wrong and using young girls um at times as their (laughs) training ground for what's acceptable and that young girls also aren't always aware of of what their options are and what they can expect as far as respect if they only seek that out through other means and I think the young people today have more access to 
online resources, which means they have more access to lots of um, useful and positive information, but heck, they have a lot of access to the dark shit that you don't want them to know and they will seek out information and you don't have control over where they're seeking that out and what um, sources they're trusting if you don't actually talk to them about exactly that. Yeah, and kids have had to cobble these resources together themselves. Mm. Totally. It's like if you were looking at, you know, the road... Like, we teach children road rules really early. <laughs> like, you know, look both ways that, you know, you, you get like your little cyclist, you know, day where you, you learn how to ride a bike and, you know, stop at an intersection and stuff. <laughs> Imagine a politician just being like, we shouldn't be teaching these children road rules. They're not old enough to drive. Yeah, they should be <laughs> holding an adult's hand anyway. And it's like, okay, I guess we will just pretend that they will never be in a situation where they're not. <laughs> Yeah, it's ridiculous. Mm. Well, this is a great segue. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Speaking of children, just real quick, though. (laughs) This is not even super on topic. This is just a crazy anecdote that happened to me the other day that I just wanted to share because we're talking about it. And it's just been fascinating my mind for the last week that uh, I was just at a Kmart and there was like... Um, I was buying a, a toy, it was my niece's birthday, and there was like a bunch of like young kids, like young boys, just like being rowdy in the group that are, you know, in the way that a group of, you know, 10 or so 11, 12 year olds mm. are rowdy. Um, and I was just coming around the corner and they're like making a fuss being rowdy and they came up. And um, then I heard, just as I was like leaving earshot, I heard one of them just say, Did you just say the N word? <laughs> and then, <gasps> and then as I like completed my shopping and I came back around, two of them had like split off from the main group of rowdy boys. And I overheard one of them being like, Yeah, man, I, re- I really do understand like what that means and I'm, I'm trying to be better. And, oh my like, gosh. <laughs> This is like an 11-year-old boy and another 11-year-old boy, like, in this really, like, I only heard, like, this tiny snippet of it, but, like, this really earnest, like, discussion of, like, unacceptable terminology and racism. Like, it was astonishing. I was just like, man, the kids are okay. Yeah. And I mean. bless them. That's wonderful. It's so interesting because those kids have obviously been consuming media and maybe the adults in their lives have those conversations. Maybe they don't. Um, and then there are other kids on Twitch watching the worst human beings mm. uh, express their views yeah. while, while playing video games. Mm. Yeah, kids absolutely learn by example. Like if, th- if those kids are having those conversations, that means they're either watching conversations like that happen or the adults in their life have those conversations, which honestly, mm. fuck that rocks. Yeah, sure. That's good. That, like, it, it means that like, you know, they look mm. out for each other and they just say, hey, that's not okay. That's not cool that you said that. Mm. And I think by like when you're a kid – like, you always think, oh, I'm just going to, like, be quiet because I feel really uncomfortable about that. Yeah. And dare I say, reflecting on your own mistakes and mm. saying you want to do better and saying that to a friend is not something a lot of adults even have the maturity to do. Oh, my <laughs> God. I was going to say. It. It's such <laughs> a know. high EQ move. And, it, like, the fact that it transitions straight from them, like, you know, knocking toys off of aisles and like throwing shit in the Kmart. Like they were genuinely being rowdy. (laughs) It was just, yeah. Kids. So this is the segment where we and I can tell all the guys in the podcast to shut up because this is our segment and it's time for the girl bosses to speak up and be counted because this week is International Women's Day. Oh, yeah. So, (laughs) 
it, this is a this is a day that <laughs> the, the guys just being like, are we allowed to say hooray? <laughs> yeah. or- How are you supposed to react to this day? Do we like Evie? Tell us whether we like International Women's Day. Shut up, McLean. <laughs> I thought I could tell them to shut up in every segment. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, I encourage that a lot. Just tell them to shut okay, up cool. when you feel like it. <laughs> Look, the problem with International Women's Day um, as a sexist is um, (laughs) that it it has really great origins. Like all sort of commemorative days, it's one of those things where it starts off with good intentions and is corrupted by capitalism. Who would have thought that this could possibly be the case? But especially with International Women's Day, no joke, it is originally a socialist holiday. It was created by socialist women. It was created at a socialist conference, at the Second International Conference of Socialist Women in 1910. And it was created to commemorate basically um, the struggle for suffrage at the time. Of course, women didn't have the vote um, across the world. Um, it was created to in an att- like to memorialise the struggle for equal human rights as well as equal employment rights, which, of course, you know, not exactly the case in any sort of industry in 1910. And... For many decades, it was still very much a socialist event and holiday in many countries, in Germany, the Soviet Union, Spain and China, and it was only taken up as a more international holiday in the 1960s by second-wave feminists and um, then officially recognised by the UN in the 1970s. So Mm. in all honesty, the seeds of International Women's Day are good. I know that I sort of speak of it in 2020, 2021 with like eye rolling sort of circumstances, but like all good things, it's been corrupted by capitalism in the last few decades. I think I feel the same about it as I feel about Are You Okay Day in that it's important and brings to the fore important issues, but at the same time it is co-opted and used by, you know, businesses and corporate bodies to have a little tokenistic day but actually do nothing about mental health of their workers in the case of Are You OK Day Mm. or gender inequity in the case of International Women's Day. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like I saw someone tweet uh, the other day just saying, like, how about on International Women's Day uh, everyone has to report what they have actually done since yes. the previous International Women's Day to yes. improve gender equity. <laughs> I'm like the sickos, the, the meme of the sickos in the window just going, yes, <laughs> tell me yeah. what you've done. <laughs> yeah, what have you done for me lately? Like, yes, I do want pastries. Yes, I love a panel discussion. Mm-hmm. But also I'm starting to not love a panel discussion. I'm start, I, I haven't really wanted to go to any panel discussion that's about how many women in STEM, gender equity in STEM? Like, I am <sighs> sick of the same panel discussion over and over again. I'm sick of the survivor bias often of mm. the women on those panels talking about what women need to do to get to their level. Um, like, I'm actually sick of celebrating people who overcome barriers rather than taking them down. Yes. <laughs> like, Incredible. And, yeah. Like, this it, it's choose just, to challenge is the hashtag for this. Um, yeah. The, the hashtag Day. doesn't even – the hashtag actually, like, the, the concept of, first of all, of having a hashtag for International Women's Day just is making me have a five-alarm brain event in my mind. But um, the hashtag itself to this year is – it's the – 
epitome of individualism versus structural change. It's like, do you do you choose to challenge the barriers mm. that women face? Yeah, I do. I've been choosing it for my entire thirty five years on this on and this sometimes planet. Sometimes I don't choose it, but I have to anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I'm not the, responsible for this. I'm not the one who's responsible for you giving me a better pay, better pay grade. I'm not responsible for you, like you know, giving me the bare minimum. It's your problem. Mm. Like I went to a women in media conference once um, and by media most people at the conference were kind of, uh, you know, journalists, not just journalists but at the traditional, the ones who, who had big speaking parts were at those traditional kind of media outlets, overwhelmingly white and as a lot of International Women's Day and women in blah, blah, blah are. And the, the topic came up in one panel about... Uh, promotion and pay and the advice from the panelists was overwhelmingly that women need to learn to ask for pay rise women need to learn to um, know what the value of their work is Um, you know women need to know how to approach their boss women need to have more confidence but actually I mean a lot of the research into women and pay rises show that they're more likely to hear a no when they ask for one and they're, and they're also more likely to have negative consequences for asking for one when their boss doesn't think, think they're deserving. So, yeah, it kind of ignored the fact that a lack of confidence was not the problem and often the lack of confidence comes from having a confidence knock so often. Yeah, like I, I remember when the first yeah. time like I saw stuff like Lean In and, oh, yeah, you need to change the way that you behave at work. Like I've worked in overwhelmingly like corporate environments for the last 10 years um, and, you know, just the whole idea of, well, it's it's your sort of responsibility to take charge of your career. And I thought, okay, yeah, sure. I've, I've worked in retail previously. It's, it's it, I'm going to you know, take my best effort to put my best foot forward. But I've been in so many bad corporate jobs in that time that – made me feel like I couldn't ask that. Like, you know, whenever you see like, oh, yeah, you could choose to ask for a pay raise. No, I can't. If my employer, and I've previously had an employer who's threatened to like give me a bad reference if I wanted to move on to another job. Yeah, I can I can definitely choose to challenge his behavior yeah. in that way, can't I? It's like, oh, come on. Like it's definitely like that kind of thing is coming from a place of lack of bad experience. Yeah, you could choose to have a, 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 you know, whole business policy where you don't underpay people or where managers actually proactively look for opportunities to promote people based on their performance and where you actually have reviews of how that looks when it comes to people's, you know, race, disability, gender, etc. Like, I, I also was thinking about the hashtag and who it's aimed at because it feels like, and a lot of these things, it's like me, I, I should choose to challenge. And then I was like, well, actually, often it's the men around me who should be the ones who choose to challenge because often mm. their voices are more respected, which is part of the problem but also could be part of the solution. And I don't think it's always necessarily being framed this way, but if I was going to use choose to challenge, I would be like, men, choose to challenge, mm. <laughs> you, you dickheads. 
Um, <laughs> good hashtag. <laughs> Men choose to challenge you dickheads. Yeah, yeah. That's, that sounds good to me. Men yeah, shut the fuck up viral. and do something for a change. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's and I've actually found in some workplaces when I've had a really good working relationship with a man that I've been working with, um, that they've gotten farther along the line of advocating for the same things I've been advocating for, but because we've talked about it and the fact that I'm not getting very far and Mm. with a male boss, you know, and it sucks that it takes that, but also it really helped. Yeah. I mean, like sometimes they're conscious of that fact too. Like Mm. um, for like I know in previous jobs um, I've had – guys who either advocate for something I put forward or they've literally done the step of referring me to a role because they know I'm going to be the appropriate person for that. And they've done that proactively because they're like, there's not enough women in this team. Um, You know, I know that you could bring something good to this, so I'm going to do the actual work of putting you forward for this. And it really fucking irritates me that that is the case that you know that it has to take a guy to chew mm. that structural train but also good do it you know and change the structure mm. I, I get really frustrated um one of the things it's funny that you mentioned like the panel discussions because that has been something that's really annoyed me for like increasingly for international women's day is that i get invited to so many panel just like attend so many panel discussions and it's by everyone. Like this year in my inbox, I think I got an invite from my super fund, um, two charities that I follow and contribute to, my union, um, advocacy for um, girls in tech. Um, and, oh, that one really made me laugh <laughs> because that one was run – like that one's being chaired by an HR person. Mm. Um, who's talking about unconscious bias. And I'm like, I don't want to talk to anyone in HR about anything. <laughs> you guys are the job <laughs> And I especially don't want to know. You're unconsciously biased there, Evie. I'll be marking that down. <laughs> I've, got unco- I've got very conscious bias against HR. Um, <laughs> just, it, like, it's, it's just a, like it's one of those things, like especially when you hear like HR people talking about this stuff, it's like they've heard this, but – because HR is there to protect business interests, they've realized they need to talk about it in the framework that benefits them as opposed to employees. It's like, you know, very conscious rebranding of HR as like people and culture Mm. or something like that, where they they try to remove the title of them being job cops, but it's only ever there just to protect themselves. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, it's like ensuring people and culture, uh, you know, doesn't collect enough actual evidence that could lead to us to being sued. (laughs) (laughs) The the other, the thing that, I mean, that I'm going to bring up about the women in STEM thing is it has overwhelmingly the women in STEM movement, let's call it, over the last five years, well, it's more, but let's say five years, has overwhelmingly benefited senior white women in STEM Mm -hmm. um, and junior white women in STEM. And I think we would get a lot further on equity and inclusion in STEM if we, and when I say we, I mean white women in STEM, actually did more learning and reflecting and actual acting and doing and choosing to challenge 
on issues like racism in STEM. Like, I actually think that, Mm. yes, women, including white ones like me, would, would benefit from, you know, lower levels of exclusion, et cetera, et cetera, through that. But also... I have encountered too many white women who are prominent as diversity and equity role models in STEM and leaders of women in STEM initiatives who only get defensive when you point out any issue to do with race. Oh, yeah. And that's me as a white woman pointing it out. So what hope does someone who's (laughs) actually discriminated against have in that? So Yeah. And we've kind of cast anyone who experiences a form of oppression as therefore an expert in how to unoppress. That's just reminded me of um, the AI ethicist that was fired from Google um, at the end of last year, Timnica Brew. Yeah. um, She was responsible for showing like the, the structural bias in Google's AI and Google's initial response is just literally to fire her. Yeah. And, you know, there's so much of this, this is the real structural inequity where someone actually manages to point out the problem and it's too uncomfortable to deal with. And then rather than dealing with the problem, they would just rather make it go away. Mm. And in her case, at least, you know, she is not only someone who was oppressed in these ways, but she also is someone who has experience and expertise in this, these things of ethics. And it's like, one issue I have in, in a lot of women in STEM, like in, in equity and diversity um, committees in STEM, is there scientists who happen to be from marginalised groups, which bring, means that they do bring to the table a lot of personal experience when it comes to being oppressed, etc., etc. But especially in the case of white, able-bodied women who end up overwhelmingly doing this work, um, too often do they themselves not have the social science experience and understanding of things like intersectionality and of, you know, how to actually make social change, which is not, you know, easy, but it it does mean that you end up with people thinking that just because they've experienced a type of oppression makes them an expert in all kinds of oppression, even beyond their personal experience. And therefore, how dare someone point out they don't, you know, they only have white women represented or, you know, that the way they're talking about this issue is actually quite transphobic or, Mm. you know, these sorts of things. So, and I, I mean, I have a mixed kind of uh, background when it comes to disciplines in sociology, which for me was just like an introduction to thinking about social inequity. It's definitely since that undergraduate degree that I feel like I've actually read and learned a lot more than I did during, like just because it's it's a process and I know, um, you know, different people enter different disciplines with different levels of understanding. But it just feels like those expertise are not broadly valued in science as a whole uh the ethics that social um inequity studies that social scientists and social science itself is an eye-rolling thing for all scientists i always think of that jurassic park quote where like he says like um they just they did it because they could but they didn't stop to think that they should Mm -hmm. (laughs) when i think about Mm -hmm. ethics it's like so much of like 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 
any sort of AI functioning in companies is like, we can just do this now. Like, you know, image recognition, that sort of thing. But no one's actually like ethics is so sort of devalued and, yeah. you know, just outright disregarded. It really doesn't exist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I work. Oh, God. no! <laughs> I was going to say I haven't been working on drones or anything. Um, <laughs> but I remembered that when I was in uni, uh, the, one of the projects was like, let's write a navigation algorithm for drones so that they can like secure a target. And <laughs> oh, no, M- McLean cancelled. Yeah. Oh, we had an ethics like unit in that course. Yeah. <laughs> And it didn't friggin' come up. It was like, should we be writing yeah. navigation algorithms for yeah, drones? Because they, they will be used to, to murder well, people. Well, whenever they do that, the drone doesn't work. <laughs> God. True. Well, it's, yeah, it's just like, oh, well, we're just doing the navigation algorithms for surveillance drones. We're not going to turn it into anything that pulls a trigger. And then, you know, two years later, you've written your navigation algorithm for a surveillance drone and somebody adds pull trigger equals true at the end of it, you're done. You know? <laughs> Actually, I just wanted to add something um, on the back of us talking about Google. Um, just this week, um, it's been revealed that um, Google's recruiting department um, used a college ranking system for years now um, to like sort of prioritize certain colleges mm. above others. So like things like Stanford University and MIT were yeah, obviously – going to be the kind of colleges that come up top in those rankings whenever they, you know, feed in people's resumes. Of course, one category of higher education that was missing from their ranking system was historically black colleges in the United mm-hmm. States. So, they that you know, they they could talk a good game of we're going to partner with all these colleges to try and get, you know, black students from uh, you know other colleges in so we can change the system. But their own ranking system basically excluded all these people from the very start. I was just going to say, I, I mean, this is like me, the whole segment is me being like, I have a gripe with <laughs> everyone. That's the show. That's a whole podcast. Um, but, but like... This is also, and it's also me having a gripe with everyone who I'm in an in-group with, but another <laughs> in-group I have a gripe with is the science communication community um, and the types of work, I guess, that science communicators can get employed for yeah. as well. It's overwhelmingly um, the type of science communication that is science PR, science yay, everything mm-hmm. science does is wonderful. And mm-hmm. we hear this kind of rhetoric in science communication where it's like, oh, we need to teach people to trust scientists and trust science. We need to teach people that science is for everyone. Um, but stem, I stem, think stem. what, yeah, what we don't hear is, oh, we need to actually make science a space that is trustworthy, that is inclusive. Oh, currently these are the issues in science that make it a sector that, you know, isn't inclusive or doesn't take into account ethics of the research itself, let alone, you know, equity within the sector. Like, you're never going to be employed by one of these big institutions to say those things. But beyond that, I think a lot of science communicators don't even think of it. They're big old science fans Mm. and Mm. they think everyone should be a big old science fan, but they don't think about, they think about people should trust science and scientists, but they don't think scientists should probably be more trustworthy because you know what? If black people don't trust medical science, I don't think it's their fault. Yeah, for (laughs) sure. Mm. Um, And it's it's the thing that, you keep coming up against in 
a society right now which is half run by Silicon Valley bros where science keeps and, and tech keep trying to roll forward without at any point considering maybe some other discipline has something useful to contribute here. <laughs> maybe we should look into the arts or, or ethics or history, blah, instead of just assuming we can reinvent literally everything from scratch without learning from our mistakes. Mm. They prefer to um, only think of the public once the science is in the bag, the results are in, the things published. Mm. We're ready to roll out GM. Why is everyone angry at us? Mm. And it's like, okay, that they'd rather blame everyone for being a bunch of like uneducated science illiterate people then actually think oh well maybe we should have done some social studies onto into this and what people's perceptions were and why and how we could actually do this research and incorporate the public and you know what that's not just about us teaching them that the thing we're developing is great and wonderful but it's also them teaching us the social issues that might come about from it being used in the wrong way so that we can you know, move forward. It's like your science would actually be better applied and accepted by the public if the public weren't an afterthought, potentially. This reminds me a lot yeah. of a thing I was reading about wind farms. Mm. Uh, if anyone's read Keaton Joshi's book, Windfall, because um, wind farms are cool, but they keep putting them in communities without effectively consulting with the community. And then everyone in the community is like, I don't know about this. I'm not getting any money out of this. And also you haven't engaged us at all. And then all the anti-wind farm guys have a a real good ground to like sow dissent and misinformation. Mm. But when the wind farms consult with the community and make sure the community benefits from it and the community has ownership and it actually meets their needs, then it's overwhelmingly accepted instead of just rolling in with your big tech guys. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a real thing in STEM of you know the the engineering and and science and you know the the STEM sciences being sort of lauded as you know the good ones that can be proved and mm. correct and then you've got like you know your social sciences and anthropology and stuff that are like well it's basically just an arts degree right that like doesn't get any respect and it's like it's such an arbitrary distinction mm. like th- th- so many tech failures could have been avoided by hiring an anthropologist or hiring a social scientist to, you know, get up and say, hey, look, or a historian to say, yeah, this has been attempted, you know, every five years for the last 200 years and it's never worked, not because there's a technical problem, but because everybody Mm -hmm. hates it. They're like, oh, right, we could have saved ourselves $100 million of a build-out. Like, it it constantly comes up. Yeah, yeah. And, like, we started this off talking about International Women's Day, then it went into Women in STEM, then it went into, like, the whole problem with exclusion of people in STEM. Then it went from (laughs) that to STEM actually excludes people from it and vice versa. Like, it's all connected. Like, it's just... Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing is if you if you were like, all right, so it looks like we're dealing with this problem that starts at International <laughs> Women's Day and spreads out through all these things. We've got this vast, interconnected, very complicated problem. I guarantee you that the person who's, who is capable of picking apart the issues in this problem is not a mathematician. They're going to be a social scientist yeah. of some description. <laughs> You're not fixing that with an <laughs> algorithm. Yeah. And yeah. it's kind of like, I mean, people kind of grasp onto the easy stuff, you know, or the stuff that makes the most sense to them. Like, oh, role models, which is true. Role models are great for, you know, encouraging young people who see themselves, etc. 
But I think overwhelmingly women in STEM initiatives and gender equity initiatives beyond that haven't always got further than, oh, good, we've uh, recruited a bunch of role models and done a bunch of profile pieces on them. Like, cool. I, You know, I'm someone who's done a bunch of those as well. I'm not hanging shit on people who do that. I'm just saying that if we don't do more than that, (laughs) we don't get anywhere. And we know that because women overwhelmingly and disproportionately to men lost out in STEM fields in terms of losing jobs, publishing less, etc. in 2020. And it's because we'd done like none of that actual systemic change had happened, you know? Yeah, we're going to need more role models. <laughs> Can we get a few more profile <laughs> poses in here? <laughs> I feel like a lot of the women in STEM events would be sort of better served if instead of just like getting a bunch of women together and, you know, giving them a, a, a raspberry pie and a, a little dev kit and being like, all right, we've got a workshop on how to like, you know, put a thing together. Instead, they were like, all right, we're going to do a workshop on how to collectivize, how to talk with the other women in your workplace to get together and demand better pay and conditions. No slagging off on the raspberry pie workshops. A lot of fun, but yeah. Or even if they did that with all the men. Like, that's the other thing is you look around the room and who's in the room, it's overwhelmingly women. And and also you're like, okay, so let me get this straight. One of the issues is that women do so much unpaid labour. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you've got all these committees that they don't get paid for. Yeah, that they're, they're doing. taking days off work. And then, mm. you know, you're training them on how to unfuck themselves. Yeah. in their spare time and sorry when do the men do something yeah <laughs> yeah i was just thinking it's going to be like pro- it's going to be like school you know how like for sex ed when they separate you into boys and girls except for the <laughs> girls you take them aside and tell them how to unionize <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've never attended any of these Raspberry Pi workshops for women, uh, for obvious reasons. Um, but if they are being used as a cover to like put socialist ideas into these people's heads, then then I fully approve of them. Yeah, let's take back International Women's Day and make it like a union event again. Yeah. But the problem is, while the women are having these conferences and Raspberry Pi workshops and and uh, listening to panels, the men are all sitting around doing business, networking, and mm-hmm. uh, get and getting promotions uh, because they've got a couple free days. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, teach me how to do a long lunch. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I think, like, I mean, it'd be great. You'd be like, okay, this is just to teach all you girls about periods. Okay, now we put the tampon in the cup. Now we can talk about overthrowing the patriarchy. (laughs) Speaking of of working women, I want to talk about bees. Do you know the men... (laughs) in the bee colony are worthless. I don't really want to talk about that. Um, (laughs) Bees, it's a matriarchy. Hell yeah. You are absolutely right, yeah. Um, They've got it worked out. But, you know, again, all of the women bees are also slaves to capitalism. Mm. Um, They they serve the queen. They don't have a say in their position. I don't want to talk about this. Um, (laughs) I want to talk about... Woolworths in relation to bees, because I saw this cute little story in a News Corp, um, a News Corp newspaper website, where one of the Woolworths stores in New South Wales got rid of a whole bunch of their fruit and veg, like uh, just had empty shelves in the grocery section, um, to highlight all of the foodstuffs that rely on bees for pollination. 
um, to so when people come in, they go, oh, where are all the oranges and stuff? They go, ah, you've now learned something about the importance of bees, which I think is I think that is a, a pretty cool display, um, and that's. Wouldn't you agree, Lee? And a nice bit of science communication. Yeah, potentially. It's also you've also learned something about how much you rely on us for food. So just think it's, about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. We should get rid of all the food and be like, ah, this is where you'd be without Woolworths. <laughs> um, you'd be at Carl's. Yeah. <laughs> and, and actually, that's what I want to know is, is when the shoppers go in, is Woolworths like, ah, oh, no, you can't buy any fruit and veggies. And they're like, well, we're not. We're going to go to Coles now. Or did they have like... Yeah, I still need my yeah. oranges. Haha, <laughs> 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 very funny. Now, where are the oranges? Um, <laughs> but, but I think this is interesting. <laughs> I just like the idea that it's just a fuck up on the behalf of their purchase <laughs> order. Who's just like, oh, I forgot to get the oranges. Uh, well, tell them the bees did it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, was a, it was a stunt. But I think this is this is cool, and they they're also the Woolworths is doing a bit of stuff right now, which is kind of interesting. They've got those little discovery gardens things, which are cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're better than Ushis, you know. Kids learn to garden. Um, they've got a lot more emphasis mm-hmm. on bees and pollinators this year. They've got some more flowers, which is cool. Um, Woolworths is also sponsoring, and I, I fell into a little bit of a Google hole. Woolworths is also sponsoring a Junior Land Care grant, um, mm-hmm. helping like kids and schools and communities like plant more plants and some more flowers and again insect pollination and stuff and i'm like what's going on here woolworths seems to be really all about teaching kids about bees now and and also woolworths why the fuck are you telling us how to protect pollinators like like yeah this is cool this is cool information but if woolworths actually cared about australia's insect population they're like the biggest farm food buying mm. conglomerate in Australia. They're one of the biggest in the world. If they wanted to save the honeybee, they could just fucking do it. <laughs> it's this it's this yeah. individual action kind of thing that that kind of irks me. Turns out though the um the the mystery was solved because they've partnered with the honey industry. They care a lot about about imported European honeybees. Aren't they the lost leaders? Honey? Yeah. I don't know. I haven't actually looked into that. Are they a lost leader? I thought, wasn't this? I know milk is. Look, fact check me. There was like a documentary about the honey industry and also James A. Caster mentioned honey being <laughs> a lost leader in one of his And James A. Caster is actually where I get most of my science information. Well, he's very tall. <laughs> I think it depends on what brand, but there are some honey brands and depending on also the country that honey can be a loss leader. Okay. Just quickly, for any of our listeners who don't know what a loss leader is, this is an economics term for when you go to the supermarket because their milk is fucking cheap and you buy the milk and they actually make a loss on the milk, but while you're there, you buy everything else as well. So Mm. they make a loss on the milk, but they make a profit on everything else. And milk is the classic loss leader in Australia because they sell like $1 a litre milk which is less than a cost to produce, um, that does fuck over dairy farmers a lot. And you've probably heard about that. Yeah, there was a big thing um, a couple of years ago mm. about like how um, there was like the milk wars between Coles and Woolworths and they kept on like uh, hastily just trying to discount the price of like litres, two litres of milk um, mm. just to compete with each other. And meanwhile, the farmers are in the back going, going, hey, guys, so are you going to give us any sort of money or nah? Like, and just not getting any sort of profit from it. And a- another common loss leader as well is roast chooks. 
at your okay. at your supermarket. Mm. There you go. So there's a lot of supermarket economic stuff that I don't know too much about. So keep going in there, buying that milk, buying those roast chooks. Don't buy anything else. Drive them out of business. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know yes. if that works. <laughs> <laughs> Won't look into well, it. <laughs> I mean, you got to buy it somewhere though, McLean. And here's the thing: Woolworths controls about 34% of Australia's groceries. Coles is another big chunk. It may be around 30%. And then you've got, you know, Aldi's down there a bit lower. So that's that's already like a good 60 to 70% of Australia's like food going through two organizations. Um, now, the, the Woolworths grant to kids for junior land care, planting plants and stuff is 1.5 million. That's the whole grant. That's all of it that's over the whole country. That's not much. Um, to put that in proportion... Over the last half year, Woolworths made a profit of over $1.1 billion. That's That's profit. That's up 28% from last year. Oh, so they did pretty well during the pandemic. Oh, they did amazingly. Here's another thing they dropped some money on. They, they, they built a $110 million distribution warehouse in Sydney. They're planning a few more as well. So $110 million distribution centre, 8.6 hectares. You could fucking plant a lot of bee flowers on the roof of that thing but i bet they're not <laughs> i would bet a lot of money that they're not <laughs> yeah if Woolworths... i just really like the idea of all these Woolworths, like warehouse workers just constantly swatting away bees <laughs> <laughs> the whole warehouse full of bees and all them the bees oh, would no. stay out of trouble though they'd be on the roof they'd be outside bees are friendly bees, bees are don't want to get in your warehouse if they don't have to scientists say that bees don't want to get in your warehouse yeah yeah exactly bees don't want to mess with you they just want to do their job without losing their habitat wasps can fuck off though no don't no that's that's scientifically incorrect information yeah i'm not i'm pro wasp i'm not going to engage with this anti-wasp business (laughs) okay no you've tangented me wasps wasps are the suffragettes of the insect world (laughs) you mean they're all for the profit of the white wasps and I don't have any knowledge about the different kinds of wasps, but people love bees. <laughs> people love bees because they're cute and cuddly and they make honey for us and they work really hard and they don't complain and they hardly ever sting us. And if they do sting us, they die. Okay? People hate wasps because wasps don't let you fuck about with them and they don't make honey for you for free. They're out there living their own life. Yeah, they've got their hives and they've got their pollination and all that, but they're not doing it for you. You don't (laughs) like wasps because they're not doing anything for you. So think about that. Fuck. (laughs) But are the bees doing it for us? I think they're like, this is for us. This is for us. Doing this for our Mm. community. And then they're like, what the fuck? (laughs) Exactly. All right, girls, let's start again. Bees are powerless. That's why people like them. Wait, so bees are like the International Women's Day where they're just like, yeah, we're doing it for us. Secretly, we're being exploited to Mm -hmm. support the current systems. Mm -hmm. Lee, I'm just enraptured by your voice for the bees basically being the CWA. Like, just like, (laughs) just this group of women just like, you know, baking some cakes and things and being like, all right, girls, let's go. The community. (laughs) I have, okay, this is a tangent, but in 2015, I went to Bundaberg with the Science Circus and on a day off, mm-hmm. I went to the soft drink factory, uh, oh. the Bundaberg soft drinks, and did a little tour through their interactive museum. And they have a little uh, video thing where there's a bee character talking to you about how their ginger beer industry came about uh, around Bundaberg 
and it was a man. And it really shit me up oh, the wall because it was clearly that. some local <laughs> Amdram guy and there are probably lots of women in the Bundaberg community who would have loved to play that role. And I just thought this is, well, firstly, it's not it's not science. No. And secondly, it's bloody sexist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, that's Agreed. that. Same with Jerry Seinfeld. He makes the bee movie and they're all male. <laughs> they're all male honeybees going out there pollinating flowers. I'm like, get out, Jerry Seinfeld. That is only the start of my beef with that movie. Yeah, and the bee wants to fuck a woman. Isn't the movie the woman wants to fuck it the bee? It doesn't matter. The bee is a male. It's assured fucking, but, like, it's still wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So, in conclusion, Woolworths doesn't Please. care about nature, and I wish they'd stop pretending they did and actually do something useful with our money. Yeah, retract that $1.2 million grant to what? land care. <laughs> 1.5 million, but friggin' that's that's nothing. It is insincere. It's like a, a, a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of their $1.1 billion mm -hmm. that they made in the first half of this financial year. So, fuck a one point, like, whatever million dollars yep. to land care. Just give all your profits to land care. Also, that $1.5 is from the 10% of your green bag purchases that wait, people bought. Wait, so we just paid for it on top of that? It wasn't actually Woolworths that gave them? Oh. No, it was part of their bag thing. So they kept 90% of the price of those bags. But also Landcare is a government thing that the government has been pulling budget from for a long time. So also that sucks. Only a matter of time before Woolworths is the government. Just comparing it to, I think comparing the, the one point, how much was 1. it? 1.5 million for the Landcare grant? The 1.5 million Landcare grant. Comparing it to the big industrial warehouse <laughs> thing is like, it's 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 a fair comparison because that is, we are just looking at where Woolworths is spending their money, but I feel like you could make the argument that it's like, well, this is sort of like part of the running mm -hmm. of their business, but they don't profit like the, the they don't generate revenue by the landcare grant but i also want to point out that in 2019 uh woolworths got caught up in a wage yep. theft scandal and just as a matter of principle uh the uh woolworths chief executive at the time brad banducci uh gave up his uh financial year 2020 short-term bonus of 2.6 million dollars mm -hmm. uh just just because he was like oh it's the right thing to do so the 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 one point five million dollar landcare grant is like that's not even you know that's like sixty percent of the CEO's bonus. That's that's the amount of money that Woolworths is throwing around. It's disgusting. I think it's something I skirted around, but the entire or like one of the big I want to say the big reason for the decline of the insect population in the world at the moment is our agricultural systems. It's it's pesticides, it's monoculture, it's the destruction of native habitat. And who has a huge influence over our agricultural system? It's fucking Woolworths. Yeah, they could say, we will not buy from unsustainable farming practices. They already put regulations on chickens and stuff. They could do it with other things. I'm going to yeah. cut in there on the mm. will not buy from unsustainable farming practices to actually say that it's Woolworths who are making farming practices yeah. unsustainable. Like, I Absolutely. grew up in a... My, well, my parents are still farming and they're quite... have been quite involved in land care. And, like, the point of land care is, you know, it, getting farmers, giving them resources, training, etc., community connection to improve... Uh, the sustainability of their land while also having that kind of link in with farming practices that they already do. And unfortunately, like, yeah, it's a non-for-profit. It gets a lot of money from donation and stuff, but it used to have a lot 
more government funding. I think one of the problems was it was making a lot of uh, nationals voters out there think more mm. about the environment and climate and things. Um, but uh, the, the thing is that I find it frustrating as a, as a lefty, a farmy lefty who's become a city lefty. Mm. Uh, well, actually, no, I didn't know what I was when I was on the farm. I was like, oh, I'm not very political. I don't understand anything, but I heard John Howard's good. Um, <laughs> like, uh, and then I think it, it, it probably wasn't until, because everything, everyone thinks the same, or at least that's all they say out loud. But um, it wasn't until I voted for the first time when I was at uni that I was like, oh, I really care about climate change. I should look up what everyone is doing about it. And, oh, my God, does my dad know they're the bad guys? Like, that's pretty much <laughs> what it was like. Um, but I think one of the things that frustrates me listening to fellow city lefties is the way that we talk about agriculture as part of the mm. problem. Because, yes, it is, but I think at the end of the day, it also comes back to this problem with blaming the individual. The individual farmers feel blamed, blah, mm. blah, blah, but also yeah, yeah. there's a big difference between mum and dad farmers selling to Woolworths or whatever and huge stations owned by corporate bodies sometimes Australian corporate bodies, often overseas corporate bodies, um, and their different capacities to actually change and adapt and invest in the things that need to be done on their farm to change and adapt to climate and also avoid uh, the the effects of, of climate change from their farming practices. Like during the millennium drought, and I'm from a mum and dad farm, <laughs> like um, there are a lot of things that my parents wanted to do to our farm to make it more sustainable that they've only been able to do recently following yet another massive drought. So I think that's where a lot of the defensiveness comes from and people kind of, I guess, get annoyed, like, why don't farmers just do X, Y, Z? Like when I did plant science, um, we would be reading something that was very much about Arabidopsis as the model plant and what we're learning about these wheat varieties and blah, blah, blah. And then we talk as students and everyone else from was from a bloody Sydney private school and would say, yeah, so farmers just need to do X, Y, Z. And mm. I'd just be like, well, A, how is Don Constable even going to learn that this paper's a friggin' thing? Mm-hmm. B, how are you actually going to make sure that he can trust that changing things to be able to do this farming practice won't fuck him and his family over the following year. Like there's a lot of social issues in here that I think have kind of allowed a lot of the rhetoric to continue between nationals and and the left that actually doesn't compel farmers to change the way they vote or yeah. think outside that box. Um, and so, yeah, Woolworths totally could change agriculture tomorrow. Um, like Woolworths and Coles could. Like, yeah, they're they're making. Yeah, I'm always happy to sort of point like point a finger at somebody and then be like, "No, McQueen, you should be pointing slightly higher." I I, I love pointing slightly higher with yeah. my with my blame. I think the answer isn't Woolworths sure. regulating the farmers because the farmers are already struggling. It's it's that that oh, they already regulate them. Oh yeah, that. That entire profit margin that Woolworths is making is extracted from farmers who are extracting it from the land. Uh, Hmm. Woolworths is paying as little as they can to the farmers, which forces the farmers to get the maximum value out of their land, which forces the farmers Mm -hmm. to uh, extract and, and, you know, ignore habitat because that doesn't make them the money. 
If mm. Woolworths paid farmers more or had other grants to help farmers or, or whatever, gave them money to help their habitat, the farmers would be incentivized and enabled to do that. Yeah, like I heard a, um, a wheat farmer who was involved in national farmers kind of talking about, you know, he'd just seen some presentations from some wheat scientists about increasing yield, you know, getting more grains of wheat per, you know, wheat plant, let's say, to help with global um, hunger and things like that. And then this guy who was, you know, from Farmers Federation, he he's a multi-generation um, wheat farmer, kind of said, oh, I mean, scientists go on about this whole, like, in, increasing yield and stuff like that, but that won't necessarily increase our bottom line because if everyone's yeah. in, got that much. So I don't know why, if I really care about that. Yeah. And that's the other thing is, like, yeah, if we're going to talk about these things that help global hunger and food security beyond our very food secure country, I guess we've also got to think about um, how that's actually implemented when it comes to the farmers um, who aren't necessarily always the easiest people to convince and change. Yeah, they got a tough life. I feel like I want to do a second hour on this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Someone else has to edit it. So shout-outs this week. Um, It has been International Women's Day uh, this week and one organisation that does great work for women uh, that we wanted to shout-out is Sisters Inside, which is an organisation in Australia who helps support uh, women and girls who have been put in prison by the Australian colonial project. Um, So it just uh, helps them out. It's a really worthwhile organisation. And if you want to throw them a couple bucks, uh, that's that's probably good. Speaking of of farmers and the environment, there's an organisation called Farmers for Climate Action, um, who are just extremely good. Um, I recommend checking them out. It's basically people who know farms and they know climate and they know how the things combine. Um, So definitely worth a look. Uh, Another organisation we want to shout out uh, in this week of Mardi Gras is Black Rainbow, which is a national Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, uh, organisation for LGBTQI uh, community. Um, It originally focused on suicide prevention within the queer community, but um, it is now just purely for the basis of upholding, up, sorry, uplifting and um, projecting black voices in the queer community. Uh, really want to support them, uh, either give them a donation or shop with them or just support um, their organisation as well. And Lee, thank you so much for coming on the episode. This has been fantastic. Yeah, this has this been, has been great. so much fun. Such thank you. Knowledge. Thanks yeah. for, uh, you know, humouring me through all of my many tangents. I oh, please, it. this podcast is a tangent <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Love a good tangent. If people wanted to find more of your thoughts, Lee, where should they look up? Uh, well, they can find me on all of the social media at Constababble, C-O-N-S-T-A, Babble. Uh, and you can find me on Twitch, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, probably other things. I have too many. <laughs> You've um, probably got a LinkedIn out there. <laughs> yeah, got a LinkedIn out there uh, if you want to connect. And so, yeah, look me up, Constababble, and then you'll be able to keep up with all the random things that I'm up to. Great. We'll put all of your details in the notes. Check that out for everything. Thanks again. It's been great. 
Thanks again for listening to Not Good Enough. You can get in touch, not with me, but with the team on all of the socials at notgoodpod. Or you can email notgoodpod at protonmail.com. Not Good Enough is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri, Yuggera, Turrbal and Gubby Gubby people. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded.